Welcome to On Leading. I'm Shauna Steffen talking with Atosa Sultani today. When we think about how to secure a sustainable future where all life thrives, it's natural that the bounty of the rainforest would come to mind. It wasn't until I talked with Atosa Sultani, founder, former executive director, and current board president of Amazon Watch, that I understood just how important the Amazon rainforest, the world's largest rainforest, is for global sustainability. Considered to be both the heart and lungs of the planet, as it generates 20% of the world's oxygen and carries one-fifth of the world's fresh water, the Amazon basin hosts more than half of the world's species of plants, animals, and insects, and over 400 distinct indigenous peoples. For her leadership protecting the Amazon's treasures from harm, Atosa has received the prestigious Hillary Laureate Award for Leadership in Climate Equity. In this interview, Atosa reveals the power of restorative leadership in action through listening deeply to herself and to the lived expertise and collective wisdom of community. Discover what Atosa heard in her dreams and how that translated to one of the world's foremost advocacy organizations that is safeguarding life's biodiversity on behalf of all. Atosa, thank you so much for being with me today. I just really want to start from the beginning, which is how in the world did you end up being one of the world's foremost defenders of the Amazon? How, how did that happen? <laughs> I think it was in 1983. It was my first year at University of Akron, my first semester. And literally on the first day of the semester, I met uh, one of my best friends. She's half Peruvian. And we basically hit it off, and she was studying biology, I was studying political science, so I got to hear about her journeys to the Amazon, to the Peruvian Amazon, and also learn along with her about the world's rainforest. I had no clue. I had never even heard about the rainforest then. And it just set off a complete journey of um, inquiry for me. Along the way, also around the same time, I learned about the Gaia hypothesis. This idea of James Lovelock first put out this idea that the Earth is a living, self-regulating, intelligent system. And those two things really just hit a core with me. And it began a process of about, I want to say at least eight or nine years where I was literally obsessed about the rainforest but didn't know what to do. Mm. I would have dreams about it. I was reading everything I could about it. And sometimes I would even just wake up like I had just been tapped on the shoulder with an idea like, you have to show up. Get down here and show up and, you know, do something. It was a calling. I eventually found myself to the Rainforest Action Network and convinced Randy Hayes to let me have some way of making a difference. And uh, so that began a process. And six years into my journey with the Rainforest Action Network, again, I started having these very, I would say, prophetic dreams about being in the in the Amazon and watching the forest be burnt down and feeling like I had to intervene and do things, something. And so I decided to start Amazon Watch, which it's its own little story of how that happened. But it happened during a, a protest in, mm-hmm. at the Stanford campus where the president of Brazil was making a speech 
and getting some kind of honorary award. And we were invited by the consulate, so I couldn't really use the Rainforest Action Network frame for the demonstration because they had been invited by the consulate. And so at the end of the speech, I ran outside as uh, the president was passing by a bank of about 30 or 40 journalists and television cameras to get into his limousine. I took out my bullhorn and kind of started to confront him about his destructive policies in the Amazon. And and, um, he looked, stopped and looked at me for about five seconds and then got in his car and drove off, his limousine and drove off, it left me standing in, in the center of a bank of cameras and journalists saying, so what's this about and who are you with? And and at that moment, I took a deep breath and I, I said, Amazon Watch. And so like the next day, all the newspaper articles were about how Amazon Watch had confronted the president of Brazil, but you know, there was no Amazon Watch. I had just been born that day. So wow, that's how it started. <laughs> What a great story. I am so glad I asked that question. Thanks for asking. Thank you. You founded Amazon Watch to protect the rainforest and advance the rights of indigenous peoples in the Amazon basin. What are you most proud of or grateful to have been able to contribute as founder and executive director for nearly 20 years? I'm really proud that Amazon Watch has become, I would say, one of the most effective organizations in defense of the Amazon rainforest and in support of indigenous rights. I feel proud this institution has the trust and partnership of dozens of indigenous peoples of the Amazon, our brand, our team, our values, and our effectiveness. And so I'm most proud of these long-term friendships and partnerships we have developed with the indigenous peoples of the Amazon. They know when there's uh, a threat facing them that they can, they have friends around the world, they have friends at Amazon Watch, and through those friends they can feel empowered to take a stand, and they feel supported to stand up to powerful interests, to be to have their voices heard and to not lose hope. And of course, along the way, there's many victories. We've you know, helped indigenous peoples win land titles. We've helped them push out oil companies. We've helped them win settlements. We've helped change laws that support forest protection. We've, we've changed laws that recognize indigenous rights. Really, we've built a movement to defend the forest, not just for themselves, but for all of humanity. At Amazon Watch, we we recently surveyed our partners, had anonymous surveys of our key partner organizations, both indigenous and non-indigenous, and a vessel. This is a vessel for this larger work that has to happen, and it has can't really take credit for that. All I can say is that trusting amazing people to come forth and really delve deeply into issues and constantly ask ourselves how can we be more effective how can we listen better how can we not impose our vision of strategies but be valuing the bottom-up strategies of the people there how can we empower and how can we help build a movement that's cohesive revolutionary but based on principles of you know, indigenous wisdom 
and based, we're not creating these principles. We're not inventing something new age thing. We are actually helping to shine spotlight and give life force to the wisdom that already exists in these places. And so um, that's what I'm most proud of. Is there anything else you'd like to say about what have been the keys to the success you have had with the movement? Being good listeners to Mm. the local communities that we intend to support, being listening to them, taking our mandate from them, and then taking that mandate seriously and delivering on the commitments we make. Um, Those have been some of the Mm. things. Um, Being strategic, because sometimes we tend to get overwhelmed by the scale of the problem. And, for example, we may be asked to support communities that are facing huge onslaught of logging and oil and mining and every kind of extractive industries. And at some point, we also had to look at upstream, saying, okay, we can support all Mm. of these communities individually, but really we need to go and change laws, change the rules of the game, change the policies that are upstream from all of these battles. For example, in the Brazilian Amazon, we were, we've were we been fighting to stop these large mega dams, and we've actually been on the ground for years and years fighting the Bela Mancha Dam. But we felt that we also needed to go upstream and change Brazil's energy policy, mm-hmm. change public opinion around indigenous peoples and the rainforest, and change financing mechanisms that allowed these dams to be built. So much of your leadership and life has been dedicated in service to the rainforest. And I wonder, what are the rainforests telling you? I'm of two minds. On the one hand, I feel a, a strong urgency, a sense of urgency, a sense of overwhelm, a sense of, you know, loss. That's how much we are losing the forest. How fast it's going, how fast it's disappearing. And so there's a lot of urgency in the work I do. I feel sometimes frustrated that we can't make change fast enough commensurate to the scale of the devastation we are seeing Mm. and witnessing. Mm. On the other hand, I also feel really inspired on a micro level when I think about the places and the people in most cases, not in all, but in most of those cases, we've had tremendous victories, tremendous results, tremendous outcome, things to celebrate and be things to be hopeful mm-hmm. for. And we have an impact. We make mm-hmm. a difference. And mm-hmm. therefore, if we can be smart, strategic, committed, and persistent, we have an impact. On a planetary basis, I think we're seeing climate change lead to large system collapse of the planet's ecological systems. And the rainforest is one of those systems. If you think about um, this area of the rainforest, the Amazon is the largest rainforest on the planet. It's literally the size of the face of the moon, the full moon. You think about it that way. Or you can think of it also as larger than the continental United States. It's a vast area. And what it provides, it actually provides the, I would say, the heart of the planet. Hmm. In that the trees, each tree, when it evaporates and transpires water, moisture, basically it's putting, lifting into the atmosphere something like 360 gallons of water a day, a mature tree in the Amazon. 
the trees really receiving the rain and the precipitation and then through the evapotranspiration, it's lifting back up all of this vapor, heat, and moisture back into the air. When you think of an area the size of the continental United States doing that, then you start to imagine that the power of this forest to actually create this huge flux mm-hmm, of vapor mm-hmm. and moisture and conveyor of weather. Mm. In fact, if you think about the Amazon River, which is the largest river in the world, and you look at the flows of the Amazon at the mouth of the Amazon in the Atlantic, and then you add up the next six biggest rivers of the world, the Amazon is greater flow than the next six biggest rivers of the world. And now you think about the water that's coming through the forest into the Atlantic is actually just around 40% of all of the rain that falls on the Amazon. The other 60% of the moisture that falls over the Amazon basin is lifted up by the trees in form of these flying rivers that really nourish the whole planet. Literally, of these flying rivers, if you look at satellite weather imagery, time lapsed over the course of months, you actually see these conveyors, these you know flying rivers that are lifted up over the Amazon and feed weather patterns and weather systems all the way here to California, around all over South America and around you know around the world. So that's why I say it's the heart of the world, and I didn't make that up. Actually, a lot of the indigenous people I work with always say the Amazon is the heart of the world. Mm. It's the breath of life. And when the trees are cut, therefore, you have less water circulating into the system. And so as you see the Amazon reaching a tipping point, whereby something like 20% of the Amazon is already deforested and destroyed, Mm. another 20% is really degraded. So you start to get around 40% of the forest are losing its their capacity to do this, be a part of this water cycle. And so what you have is you have a system that's in uh, steady decline and at the verge of collapse. Combining that with the fact that we have climate change, we have a warmer world already, you know, we've increased global temperatures by almost one degree Celsius. And we are heading to a two-degree warmer world. And a two-degree warmer world would basically mean the extinction of more than 40% of all plant species in the Amazon. So you not only have the number of species, but the forest cover both affected. And then when you have this hydrological cycle interrupted, you have droughts, you have extreme weather events. And that itself is a positive feedback loop that spells a lot of disaster and catastrophic implications for humanity. So when we think about transforming the world, what we need to impart is this larger worldview. We need to help people see this living, intricate web of life of which we're a part of and um, recognize how what we do to the web we're ultimately doing to ourselves and to future generations. Beautiful. Thank you. In many ways, you have been accomplishing the impossible, the work you've done stopping big oil and evolving the extractive energy practices. What does it actually take? Well, I would say that change takes time. And often 
you develop a campaign strategy or program strategy and you go to your funders and you say, I want I want you to support this new initiative, often there's an unrealistic sense by you know, maybe optimism on our part and unrealistic expectations on the part of funders to think, oh, that's a two-year goal or a three-year goal. And in most cases, when I look back at our successes, almost all of them took something like 8, 10, 12, 14 years, the big successes. You know, I think we've had small victories here and there with a little bit of a couple years of work. But generally, it's rare to have anything significant without us spending at least 10 plus years mm-hmm. in a place committed to a long-term strategy. And I think that that's been one of the lessons. It takes time mm-hmm. and we have to have the long-range view. And, you know, sometimes that makes it harder to fund. So I think one of the challenges is that, you know, funders don't have that kind of long-range patience. Some of them do, not all of them. And they want to see results. And there's also this tendency of wanting to see new things. So every year you want to package it and create something new so that it's exciting and can can be you know, sold to your funders. And I think that that tends to create flavor of the month campaigns, which while maybe able to make move the needle on some issues, really don't go to the root causes of the problem nor address the, the kinds of strategies that can withstand the test of time. So part of our advocacy strategy has been to look for those short-term what they call low-hanging fruit, but to think long-term and to think about our, our staying power in that place. Mm-hmm. And also the other thing I would say is that sometimes the same strategies don't work, you know, like you have to have new strategies because the world changes, but the basic fundamental principles of strategy work. This idea that you work with communities and help build a solid capacity on the ground for communities to advocate for themselves and that you work with them to ensure they have understanding of their their land rights and their lands and they have good systems for taking care of those lands and then asserting their rights with the outside world. Those are principles that are time-tested. We don't need to reinvent them. So I'm speaking to you and it's a culmination of hundreds of people like myself who have had different parts of the solution and um, really I can't take credit for any ideas being my ideas. Mostly I've just been a vessel, a place to bring ideas together mm-hmm. and people together. Mm. And to have the privilege of getting to hear a voice like yours that is speaking on behalf of the collective intelligence and the decades to millennia, uh, you know, based on how deeply the listening was happening of wisdom is just such a privilege to get to to do and to hear from. What would you say is distinct, if anything, about what is needed from leadership at this time in our planet's history? Lately, I've been thinking a lot about several things. One is that we need the vision of positive alternatives of what is possible. Mm -hmm. Positive futures vision is something that I think is very much got to be part of our messaging Mm. and part of how we frame things. 
I think another part of it is women's leadership. I feel like women are at least half the population, and yet they're underrepresented in decision-making. They're underrepresented in every aspect of governance, from business to, to government to civil society. And, you know, at this point in history, I feel like we need to step up and make room for women's leadership because we actually that will be transformative. I also think that we have to look at our belief system and paradigm. My work right now doing on a film project is looking at looking at paradigm because working with indigenous peoples what I've seen is that when everyone in these communities shares a belief system instead of cultural assumptions and is brought up and oriented with those cultural assumptions and belief systems, their world looks actually different. Mm -hmm. When you are indigenous, raised on indigenous traditional values, that the earth is your mother, that your aspirations to be a good ancestor to future generations, that really you have to think about the seventh generation, and really everything's about relationships, whether it's a, you know your relationship that two-legged or four-legged or your community or your your landscape or your forest and that everything is really about reverence and reciprocity this principle that you give back to the earth you give you don't just take that everything's got spirit even the rocks and the forest that this is a living sacred realm that you are a part of and what you do to the web you do to yourself that these kinds of belief systems is why that when you look around the world, you see that actually something like 80% of the world's biodiversity is defined by species, number of species. 80% of the world's biodiversity is on indigenous people's lands because the rest of us have destroyed the rest of it. So the belief system that yields this outcome you know, the belief system that the earth is alive and a living system and that we have to be good stewards. And this idea of stewardship and reciprocity has yielded a world where indigenous territories are the most biodiverse and could actually house and guard most of the world's biodiversity. And so I'm interested in how we put forth positive futures, women's leadership, and core paradigm shift, this living earth paradigm that really speaks to mm. what native uh, cosmology and indigenous wisdom has always, has always expressed. Thank you for joining the conversation on leading. I'm Shauna Steffen talking with Atosa Sultani, founder and 20-year executive director of Amazon Watch. To support the work of protecting and preserving the Amazon rainforest, please go to amazonwatch.org. And to learn more about restorative leadership in action, subscribe to On Leading through restorativeleadership.org or on iTunes. Thank you again for joining us.